Gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host, and we have been working on a series. Uh, I was thinking, Rachel, to myself this morning, what do we call this series? Manhood and Womanhood, um, Beyond Authority and Submission series. I'm, I'm not sure what we're calling yeah. it, but um, then it, with Beyond, or if, when I thought about manhood and womanhood, I thought, well, that sounds too much like recovering mm-hmm. biblical manhood and womanhood and then wasn't sure what we'd call it but it's a series nonetheless on i would maybe men and women in the church home and society there, there you go. go from your book That'll work. <laughs> um but we've we've received uh, quite a few questions um follow-up questions to this series and so we're going to go through and answer some of them uh some of you have sent them to me through email and um, some in the group or on Messenger, and we probably won't get to, to everything that was sent in, but we'll we'll get to some of the ones we thought were really important. And I do want to mention that we've got another series coming up soon, or I guess after this, this will be the last in this series. We've got some really, really great topics and um, a couple of guests we're excited about having on. So uh, we'll tell you more about that next week. So a lot of what we're going to do today, Rachel's going to answer. And as I've said, probably 10 times through this series, Rachel did so much research um, for her book and is just more knowledgeable on some of these things than I am. Um, and so one that came in, it actually came in twice, Rachel, mm-hmm. and I'm sure this is something you've thought about a lot. And that is in regards to First Timothy 2.15, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What does that mean? And I have to say, I read something that was a really 
poor explanation of what it meant. So uh, the the lists on a lot of these difficult passages of, of bad interpretations are are there are so many bad interpretations. Of, right. It's like no, it really can't mean that. And and really, like some of the other things that we've talked about, it's often easier to go through and say, okay, well, Paul can't mean this because that would contradict this other part of scripture. Like we can't say that a woman is saved literally by bearing children because that would be salvation by works. So it can't mean that we are saved because women are saved the same way men are through faith in Christ. So, you know, it, it can't be that. So what's going on here? And um, I think it helps that if we talk about the passage, that whole First Timothy two passage, the eleven to fifteen together, to kind of get the feel of what's going on, so that you can hear what what Paul is saying there in context. And um, I will preface this with. This is my, what I'm about to talk about here. The, the explanation I'm giving comes from one of Todd Bordeaux's sermons on this passage, and we'll have a link for you. So, if I sound like I'm quoting him, I am quoting him here. So, in this passage, uh, Paul is addressing the church, and he wants the church to be orderly and peaceful. And we see that lots of places in the New Testament where Paul is talking about uh, doing things decently and in good order. Right? So, this is another of those examples. And Paul's concern, particularly in these verses, is who's teaching authoritatively in the church, who's leading in the church. And, you know, as, you know, Colleen and I both believe and, and affirm, God has given a spiritual authority in the church to certain men, and these are our pastors and elders. And so, what women are restricted from are the ordained church offices. Now, the restriction that Paul makes here about women not being ordained leaders in the church doesn't apply outside the church. And so, a woman could be a professor in a university where men uh, are her students, or she could lead men in uh, government or in business. That's not what Paul's talking about. It also doesn't apply to women as lay members of the church, teaching, writing, blogging, podcasting, discussing theology, even if the audience includes men. Uh, women are fellow heirs with men uh, in, the, in the faith. We are not second-class citizens in the church, or the example I use in the, in the book, we're not throw pillows just there for decoration. Our contributions are equally valuable uh, as the men's. Now, um, when Paul talks there about learning quietly, there seems to have been some aspect in the, the church in Ephesus uh, that the women were causing some kind of disruptions, and Paul is encouraging them to be peaceful and orderly. And he gives the example of Adam and Eve. So, Adam is the covenant head, and Eve um, acted on her own in sinning and didn't respect the order God had given them. Uh, and in that way, the women of Ephesus uh, are reminded, and women today are reminded to submit to the leadership of the church and not cause disruptions. Now, that reminder goes both for men and women in the church, because not all men are the leaders of the church, not all men are qualified and ordained, and we are all called to submit, men and women, to submit to our church leadership and to respect their authority. So, while this is applied here to women, it is a more it, it, it's, it's more generally both men and women who need to respect authority in the church. So, then we get to verse 15, and we see what Paul says there about women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. It's a, a warning and an encouragement. Uh, Pastor Bordeaux points out that childbearing here represents one thing that women can do that men can't. 
And he's not, Paul isn't restricting women to childbearing to say that childbearing is the only thing or the essential contribution a woman can make to the church, right? Women are free in the church to do what God has given us to do, aside from we have not been given uh, ordained office. So the point is to remember that our callings as women, with childbearing being uh, an example of something that women do, uh, and we are to serve God with faith, love, and holiness, and etc. So, God is pleased with our labor as women in all that we do, as long as we're not rebelling against the leadership structures in the church. Now, how we can serve God within these boundaries is a great, great question, and we won't get into all of that here. Um, I would give some examples uh, that many of the hymns that we sing in church were written by women. Women can, are often active in mercy ministries. And as lay women, we are free to discuss, write, and uh, teach theology, uh, and we should all be involved in encouragement and discernment. As we all know, there is a lot of bad theology out there, and a lot of it's directed at women. So, these are ways in which we can serve in the church and use the gifts that God's given us. Yeah, and you know, I, I wanted to say something about discernment, too, in that is that some discernment, sometimes we see uh, even men out there that we maybe respect teaching something. And then we automatically say, well, it's a man and I respect him. But we need to be discerning in all things. Absolutely. So just a quick a quick note about that. Um, just because it's a man doesn't mean he's automatically right, because there's lots of men who disagree with one another. So, <laughs> Absolutely true. So ESS um, has been such a huge, huge, huge um, issue, obviously. And... We've talked mm-hmm. about it quite quite a bit, and we're we're actually going to be doing an episode on the Trinity coming up, and we will talk about it a little bit more there. Um, so, the, this is the question that she wrote: Looking at ESS and complementarianism as taught by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and how they view women as the weaker, less moral, manipulative, over emotional sex, striving to control by any means necessary. Do these views lead to abuse or, at the very least, the cover-up of abuse in homes, the church, and the workplace? Because I was taught the girls are emotional and we tend to read into things and overreact, that I was probably just doing that. And what happened to me was actually normal. Could this view be harmful in more ways than just theological? And I wanted to say a real quick word about it. I have seen this. I have seen women who are being... Um, treated with cruelty um, towards them by their husbands and they've gone to the elders of the church and they have been doubted mm-hmm. as if they must it must not be as bad as what they say it is and um, in one case I witnessed the cruelty um, of her husband towards her myself and it was absolutely as bad as she said it was and in fact I didn't even find out even it was worse than than I thought and than than she had said but it is so that's just one example of how this is definitely harmful in how this plays out and your thoughts Rachel so yeah there's there's a lot of ways in which we can see the effects of these beliefs in in marriages and in in churches and and certainly I can um relate to what Colleen just said about uh, seeing these examples within people that she knows and, and with in marriages where she's been familiar. And I've, I've had many women reach out to me along these lines. So I, so I know that 
these, while those can be anecdotal, there is a, a preponderance of evidence that, that's probably not the word I want, try again. There is a, a weight of evidence by the number of examples where it's the same thing. So people say this is exactly what they've done and been told. So <clears throat> what I think happens, or what I, and I've written about this, when, uh, when the teaching is that women are prone to deception and are going to try to usurp male leadership, men begin to suspect women and their counsel, uh, and the interactions between men and women become more and more antagonistic. You know, if, if men can't trust women uh, to make wise decisions, and if men have to be careful not to let women lead them, then, you know, men and women are pitted against each other and not being taught to work together and to co-labor together. And this isn't an issue about, you know, you know, husband's headship or about authority and submission in marriage. This is about how we get along together on the day-to-day life, right? So if, if men can't trust women, and particularly their wives, they're never going to benefit from their insight. And women will, be, will begin to doubt themselves and doubt the love that their husbands are supposed to have for them, because how can their husbands love them if they see them primarily as adversaries? Uh, adversaries. And you know, that's what happens with this hyper-focus on authority and submission. So there's this environment that can become emotionally, spiritually, and even physically abusive for women and children, especially when a man's authority over his wife and children is treated as almost absolute. So in this system, you know, men are the authority that have been put into place over families by God. So if you reject that authority or resist that authority, even when it's used abusively, you're told that you're putting yourself at, at risk of spiritual harm, right, or even physical harm, because you're stepping outside your, as we've said before, the umbrella of, of protection, right? So, women that are told to submit to their husbands, even if their husbands are cruel, harsh, and abusive, and we talked about this last week with, with uh, Pastor Bordeaux about why that's not appropriate. But women are told that even in these cases, they are supposed to submit, and not only submit, but to uh, submit without complaint, right? To suffer in silence like Jesus did, and that somehow brings glory to God. You know, I just want to say here again, as we've said before, if you're in a relationship where you're being abused, and if you have to question, say, I'm not sure, is this abuse? It probably is, right? It, it's probably bad. And you should talk to someone who can help you. Um, go to the church. If it's an issue of physical safety, go to the um, to the police. Get help. Because this is not something that people should be told to submit to and to to suffer in silence over. So, in other ways, these teachings can become, uh, these teachings of authority and submission, the way it's taught in, in these circles, can become uh, not just spirit, not just physically abusive, as we just talked about, as some people use it, but also spiritually abusive, when you teach that men represent Christ to their families, or that men are the priests or mediators for their families, it denies women and children direct access to God, and it contradicts the priesthood of all believers. It's also spiritually abusive to teach that women are more easily deceived than men and are prone to usurp male authority, because it undermines the role that women have as co-laborers with men, and it creates a climate of suspicion and distrust. 
Women, believing women, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit just as believing men are, and we can be trusted as counselors for men even in spiritual and theological matters. And as we've, uh, I don't know if we've talked about here before, but we've talked about in other places, you know, even uh, like the Reformers, Martin Luther considered his wife to be a great counselor for him. Uh, John Calvin had correspondence with with several women, um, even on matters of theology, and so there is a a history and a place for trusting women and listening to women. Now, going back to the physical abuse, when when everything is about authority and submission, including the relationship in a, the intimate relationship in a marriage, then if a, there can be additional physical and sexual abuse that can come out of this, because if a wife has no right over her body and no power to deny her husband, and a, a husband then has the authority to compel his wife. And this system, it's ripe for abuse, because it's contrary to what Paul tells us about our duties to each other. We have mutual authority over each other as husband and wives, and a good husband would never abuse his wife and demand what she's not willing to give freely. But the problem is, not all men are good. So, you know, as we talked about last week, many of us are in good marriages and we're thankful for our husbands and thankful for the good men in our lives. But the problem is, not all men are good. And this system that focuses so much on authority and submission and and hyper-emphasizes male authority in this way, provides little protection for women whose husbands are not good men. And the system creates a, these teachings create a system that tolerates abuse, but because it calls on women to endure these abuses as a holy burden, right? And even to the point that, that women are told not only to suffer in silence, but all you can do when your husband is abusing you is to, to gently appeal to him submissively that he changes ways, right? Or just keep silent. And it just perpetuates the abuse. And there there are literally people um, that hold the views we're talking about that I read somebody say that marital rape doesn't exist and argue that since the wife's body is his, that it's it's not a thing. Well, I'll tell you, I've spoken with women that have been raped by their own husbands violently. It exists. And, and even some of the views on sex where sex is more about the man conquering the the woman right um it's it's not um the beautiful um thing that god has created and there there's just so many ways in in which these views can play out in a negative way and i think it would be good to talk about first peter 2 1 and 2 mm-hmm. um that we got a question about here because it really does fit into this conversation um First Peter 2, 1 and 2 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And she's asking if that's about Christian or non-Christian husbands. And I've seen people who believe this is about Christian husbands. Women's that, women that are being abused are told to stay and bear it um, based on this passage. Yeah, this the context of the passage in First Peter is about women who have become believers, but they're married to men who are not believers. 
And throughout 1 Peter, Peter's encouraging believers about how to live among non-believers in a hostile environment. So, here Peter is telling these women not to antagonize their husbands, not to nag at them and, and try to get them to convert, but to pray for their conversion and to live at peace as far as they are able. Right? So, don't make, difficult, make life more difficult than it needs to be. Love your husbands, live with them. And hopefully, your behavior and your changed attitude about life and about the world and about how to live as a Christian will bear fruit in your husband and that he will see this. Um, it is This passage is not at all about keeping quiet about a Christian husband's unrepentant sin. For example, and we, we can see this because Sarah, who is referenced, in the, is referenced in the passage, there are three times in Scripture where Sarah rebuked or confronted Abraham, telling him what to do for his own good. So, you know, we have a lot of passages in Scripture about how believers should encourage and correct each other. That doesn't stop applying because we're married, right? So, even in marriage, we are still brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we are still to encourage and correct each other lovingly as we are called to as Christians. And I have heard this passage used quite often that to tell women that they are not to confront their husbands of sin. And now, that doesn't mean that you should... Um, walk around as a fruit and sin inspector and confront no. your husband for every tiny little thing. But there are times um, if your husband, let's say, I'll give an example because this was one that was given to me. A, a woman, her husband was addicted to pornography, still at church every Sunday and, and so on. And um, so she um, she came, you know, wanted counsel and should unfortunately i've heard this one a couple times do i confront him and do i follow matthew 18 if he continues in it and and yes the answer is yes well i I wanted to add too before we go on that these examples and others that we bring up even though we bring these up and these are brought up regularly in these discussions many um, conservative christians who, who believe along these lines and who teach these things They disagree that the teachings are responsible for this environment that tolerates and facilitates abuse. And to a point, I agree with them that someone who's abusive is going to use whatever they want to justify their behavior, right? Abusive people are abusive regardless of their background. But the beliefs about the natural authority to men and the natural submission of women that are being taught do create and maintain a system that provides cover for a particular kind of abusive man. And ignoring that does not help us. Something is bad here in what's being taught in the practical outworkings of these beliefs, and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, and um, there are many men that believe these things that are not not abusive. No, absolutely. And I, absolutely. And I I tend to think that in some cases, men that tend towards those behaviors are attracted to theologies that will justify the behavior. Yes, I agree. I think that's very true. So, um, we've kind of addressed this before, but we can address it real quick. Uh, Somebody asked, I understand from listening to the podcast how things should work between men and women. Can you better explain how relationships between men and women should look in the church and home? And one thing I wanted to say, I think that we tend to want somebody to give us a nice little list. Um, You know, there's people are always looking for marriage books and parenting books. And some of those can be helpful. Um, But 
Uh, I remember when I had my first kid and he was one very specific personality. My second kid was about as different from my first kid um, as you could be. And I thought, well, now I have both kinds. I figured out how to parent them. And then I had a third one who was different. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all the parenting books in the world didn't necessarily um, tell me how to parent my specific child. And within marriage, um, you know, we can talk about some basic principles that scripture gives, but our marriages are going to all look different. Um, my marriage looks different than Rachel's. And, you know, we have different personalities and different lives and, um, you know, married for different lengths of time. And so I think sometimes people want the list. Here's the list of things to do um, as a wife. And if you do all of these things, then it'll work. And I was actually telling Rachel earlier that like one book that a lot of my friends read um, had had a list of things that you should do for your husband. And, um, and I knew a couple of those things, like it would drive my husband crazy. And I even read some of them to him. And he just looked at me and said, don't do those things. <laughs> right. you know? So anyways, but what would you say about some of those things, Rachel? Well, adding on to that, I think it's true too, about not only in marriages will it vary, but even in churches, because not every church situation is the same. We have different um, traditions. For some of us, they come from different backgrounds, so the way things work in our churches is different, and the size of our church and where it's located in our culture. There are a lot of varieties, or a lot of um, variables, that, that, that so we have basic principles, but there are some things that are going to vary based on um, our, our, our specific situations. And, you know, that's not a a call for everyone to just throw up their hands and say, oh, no, we have no rules. I'm just saying that there there is a place for liberty within our boundaries, both in marriage and in the church. So, um, yeah, I would point back to our episode that we did on marriage, that we talked about marriage as companionship. Um, I think that, you know, my, one of the points I make in the, my book is that in moving beyond authority and submission, I think that it's important to incorporate and to look at how unity and interdependence and service uh, how these uh, these elements and aspects of our relationship, how they can um, bless our marriages and, and look at how we should relate, both in marriage and in the church. And, you know, we see that from creation that God made man and woman in His image and He gave them tasks to do together. So we have... We were made to be co-laborers, to work together. We were we have a calling to work and to work together to, to serve God. So I think that when we remember that we have this unity, that we are supposed to be allies who work side by side and not to be, um, you know, antagonistic with each other, but to, to work together and we have the same, um, for the same goals, right? We are, we are serving the God together. That's our goal. We remember that, and we remember that we're interdependent. We need each other. And each one of us, as, you know, as Colleen was saying, that our marriages all look different because we're all unique individuals. Each one of us in our marriage brings something to our marriage that the other needs. And understanding that interdependence helps us keep from seeing ourselves as the more essential in the marriage. We, we, we're both important and we are both necessary and we have equal value although we're not the same and then we need to remember that in all things with with as believers our focus is supposed to be service so husbands are encouraged to serve their to serve their wives to love them and put their needs first uh, like christ 
did for us. And wives are encouraged to submit to their husbands and to love them and put their needs first. And this too, by focusing on each other's needs, discourages us from trying to either manipulate or dominate each other. And I think that those are the ways in which to say some basic principles about how it should look in marriage. What, one thing I just wanted to add, because I think one of the questions that comes up all the time when we talk about marriage in the group is submission. Mm-hmm. What does submission look like? And, you know, I think that unfortunately, um, in some circles, it it almost looks like a husband controlling his wife and a wife then just, it, almost like the wife is another child, right. you know, um, where the submission becomes the same sort of um, fifth commandment, right. you know. And, and that's not, that's not what it looks like. And I think one thing I've seen just in my own marriage is just being married 24 years now is how my husband and I have grown together yes. and, and learned more what that looks like and had conversations. And, um, and I don't even think about it much, really, um, just because we've grown together and we just function a certain way. So I know that's the question that comes up a lot, and I'm not going to give you the 10 steps to submit to your husband. Um, in, in talking with, uh, with my pastor recently about these issues and about these, these passages, something he mentioned about uh, the Ephesians passage about wives submitting, that he said that wives submit their husbands by supporting them, making their leadership easy, meeting their needs, right? And husbands then put the needs of their wives before their own, and, and that... In every situation, wives should do what's best for their husbands. And as we said, that can include rebuke and contra- confrontation like Sarah with Abraham, or as needed. I mean, again, it's not us being nagging and picky and you know trying to make our, lives, our husbands' lives miserable, but it's about doing what's best for them, right? And that is, if we're doing things well in marriage, we should both be doing that, but doing what's best for the other. Yeah, amen. I like the way that um, that you said that, quoting Todd. It was very helpful. So how about church? And I'm glad that you said, because I neglected you, I'm glad that you said that it's going to look different in different churches. Um, you know, I've probably been, I don't know, a member of five, six churches in my life or uh, something like that. Add more if you think about my college years. And they were all very different churches, even um, you know, I think of two in the same exact denomination. Right. We're different churches. One of a in that denomination, one had you know two hundred and fifty members. The other one, you know, I don't know seventy five. Um, and just very different. They were very different um, areas of town. Um, mm-hmm. You know, two different large cities, and you know, so they're going to be very very different. Even though um, there was word and sacrament and. Um, pastors and elders and so there were those things that were the same but there were other differences like you were talking about their areas of liberty mm-hmm. well you know when we talk about the church because you know colleen and i as we've said uh, affirm qualified male ordination in the church that our leaders should be um, our ordained leaders should be uh, men who are qualified based on the, the scriptural qualifications but in truth that group of ordained men who are called and, and ordained to the, to the leadership represents a small percentage of the whole body of the church. So, when we're talking about how men and women can work together in the church, the question really boils down to how can the lay members of the church be active in the church life? 
and here too, I think that, you know, focusing on unity and interdependence and service, you know, we can, we can really help move the discussion past, you know, the who can do what and more to how do we serve each other. And so, you know, we see from scripture that we are believers, we're united in Christ, we're united together, we are the, the household of God, we are brothers and sisters, we are the adopted sons and daughters of God, we are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, right? All of these analogies highlight our unity. And you see it in scripture, most of the uh, most of the advice, most of the instructions in Scripture are given to Christians, male and female. Right? There are a few specifics, but most of it is to all of us. And so, what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us to encourage one another and build each other up. We are to live in peace with one another, to admonish, encourage, help, be patient, uh, bear each other's burdens, do good to, to all people, especially those in the household of faith. We are to teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and singing with thanksgiving or thankfulness. We are encouraged, Peter encouraged us to care for one another. Right? So, while we don't all have the same gifts or responsibilities in the church, we need each other and we need each other's gifts. We have different gifts, abilities, and perspectives, and all of those should be used as we serve each other and glorify God. All of us are called to this surface and sacrifice, and we should serve our church in part by honoring our church leadership and upholding the word, the ministry of the word and sacrament that they're called to, but also then use our gifts for the benefit of the church and the glory of God um, by co-laboring together for the gospel. And that's, that's the word that Paul uses. Paul calls women in the church, uh, or there are women in the church who Paul includes as co-laborers for the gospel. And, you know, that's the challenge that I, I raise in the, my book is that, you know, can we say that about our churches? If so, that's great, right? But if you're looking around our churches and in your church or in the church that you're part of or that you're familiar with, if women aren't co-laboring with the men, if they have been get re- relegated to either throw pillow or second-class citizen status, then we need to go back to the scriptures and see how to incorporate women into the life of the church so that we can use and appreciate the gifts that God has given all of us and be built together as co-laborers in the body of Christ so that God would be glorified in all that we do. Amen. Um, one, of, one of the things that I've seen a lot of recently, I'm sure you've seen it too, Rachel, mm-hmm is people saying, why do you make such a big deal about ESS? And um, I'm trying to think of exactly how one person said it, but they they made it sound like anyone who's making a big deal about ESS is just out there searching for something to make a big deal about, and they need to stop. And this is, these are coming from even, you know, some teachers that, popular teachers that are, that are talked about a lot. And um, I think one of the things that's happened is um, there are some people that have tended towards that view, I guess, because um, there are um, egalitarians that have made a big deal about ESS. And so then automatically, if you make a big deal about ESS, then you must 
agree with egalitarianism or some sort of such thing. Um, but one of the things I've really thought about myself, I'm sure you have too, is how important the doctrine of the Trinity is. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the importance of essential doctrines of the Christian mm-hmm. faith. There are essential doctrines of the Christian faith that have been recognized since the early church, and the Trinity is one of them. So I'll just start by saying that's why ESS is a big deal, because having the right doctrine of the Trinity is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And I'll let you... T- Take it over from there. Well, it is. It's, it is foundational. I mean, it's not. It's not an accident that, or a coincidence that the the majority of the controversies that the early church dealt with were related to the Trinity. That this is yep. this doctrine and and getting it right was of such importance that there were several councils on it. That there have, are several uh, formulations to make sure that the language is exactly answering all of the issues so that we say the right thing and not the wrong thing. So it is extremely important that we get the Trinity right. And it's, you know, I've said in other places back when we, we did the Trinity debate happened, you know, you know, three summers ago that when it kicked off, this is not an agree to disagree doctrine. This is, this is fundamental foundational first order doctrines. The Trinity is, is, is it. This is the first one that we have to get right. So, I mean, I would point anyone back who, who wants to know more about ESS, I would point back to the episode that we did on it um, back when the debate was raging, I guess. I don't remember exactly when we recorded that. Um, but it's been a couple years, and so I'm sure we'll we'll put that link in the, in the notes for this. Yeah, I'll add it. Okay. So, there are consequences to to ESS, to eternal subordination of the Son, both for our understanding of the Trinity and for our beliefs about men and women. To teach that God the Father is the supreme God with the highest authority and supreme glory means that God's nature has to be divided. So, if the Father is supreme, then the Son and the Spirit are not co-equal with Him. And if Jesus, as the God-man, isn't the exact imprint of the Father, if He's missing something of the essence of God— in this case, the authority, then he's not truly God. And if he's not truly God, then his death and resurrection can't save us. And it really is that serious. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) On the practical side, eternal subordination matters because it affects what is taught about the nature of men and women. ESS envisions a hierarchy of authority within the persons of the Trinity, which is then used as the foundation for a similar hierarchy between men and women. So, if a woman submits to male authority, just because she's a woman, then she has no choice. She submits because she's female. That's an ontological nature of woman uh, statement. And so, contrary to this hierarchical view of women and men, submission in marriage in the church is an example of equals agreeing to submit to the authority of leaders they have chosen for themselves. There is order here, but there is not subordination. And that is why it matters. So, One of the big things that's come out because of your book, Rachel, Mm -hmm. it's debated everywhere. I've seen it in like every Facebook group is the question of ontology. And um, so what what this gal asked is, um, can you do a rundown of separate ontology argument, male and female natures and why it doesn't work? And one thing I wanted to say first, because I. I will tell you, I know very little about this, and I'm just in the beginning of studying it. And I really fear that a lot of people that are 
um, throwing out views on this really don't understand it because I have read so much this week and I feel like I barely understand it. It is a very, um, it's, it's a complicated subject really to understand ontology. And I think that then people see discussions and they see somebody on Facebook say, this is why men and women have different ontology. And they then latch on to that without fully understanding it. And so I know we're not going to be able to get into it really deeply, but I think it is an important question. Well, I agree that it is important. And, you know, ontology is, is what deals with the nature of being, right? It, it's the study of who or what we are. It's about our nature. And I wrote three chapters in my book on the nature of men and women because it's important, because that's the, the foundation of understanding the relationship between men and women starts with what you believe fundamentally about who we are as men and women. And because I believe that we should start with Scripture, then that's where we should go first. Uh, so, I'm going to start with Genesis 1. Genesis 1 tells us, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And it says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So here we have humans, male and female, created in God's image. God made Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. He made Eve from one of Adam's ribs. In our very nature, men and women are equally made in the image of God. This is who we are. This is our unity. We all come from the first man, Adam, even Eve was created from Adam. We have the same human nature, no matter where we're from, and what we look like on the outside. And that unity is essential to who we are, and to understanding the rest of this discussion. So when God made humanity in his image, he did so by making a man and a woman. Women are made in the image of God just as much as men. Men don't have more of God's image because they're, they're men. We have equal worth, equal value. We are not, that, that doesn't mean we're the same. Uh, men and women are different, obviously, but we are inter interdependent, as we've said. Um, the issue in these discussions is not whether, they, that whether I didn't discuss ontology, and it's one of the things that I've heard a lot, is that, well, you just didn't get into it. I talked about ontology, and we're talking about it now. The issue is, whether you believe that there is one human nature or whether you believe that there is a separate male nature and female nature. So those who disagree with me on this issue, the, the people that we've, we've had these discussions with, where these discussions are popping up around, um, they seem to want more inherent gendered differences between men and women, differences that go to our nature. Right. So, and as we've said um, in other places, they, they want to say that men are by nature leaders and in authority and women are by nature submissive and responsive. Right. That's that fundamental difference of understanding in men and women is, you know, why I wrote my book. Right? But as scripture shows us, there is only one human nature. That's what we see in Genesis one man, humanity is made male and female, and humanity is made in God's image. But inside that, the one human nature, um, there's a quote, Prudence Allen in her, the concept of woman says 
that inside that, that we are all in the image of God, but inside that there are two distinct ways of being human, and that's male and female. And I thought that was a good way of putting it. And the reason that it matters is all humans born from Adam and Eve inherit Adam's fallen sinful human nature. With the incarnation, Jesus assumed took on a human nature. So he has a human nature and a divine nature. And that is why it's important that men and women have the same human nature. All of humanity is united in Adam, and all believers, male and female, are united in Christ. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There is an extremely dangerous outcome if we teach that men and women have separate natures. Because if men and women have different ontologies, different natures, Did Christ die as a human or as a male? Because if Christ died only as a male, then women are not saved by him. Because what is not assumed, in this case a female nature, cannot be redeemed. So if Christ did not have represent us in his life and death and resurrection, then we can't be redeemed. And that is extremely serious, and that is why it matters when we say that are in our, in our ontology, in our nature, where there is one human nature. In one of these discussions, I someone who was thinking through this, and you know, it said that exact same thing um, that you did, Rachel, and brought up Galatians three twenty eight and twenty nine. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And I will say, I do not think that everyone in these discussions, just like not everyone who holds to these ideas uh, is abusive, right? Not everyone who holds to these ideas believes that um, you know Jesus isn't isn't the same is, is sorry isn't equal with the father right not everyone who holds to these ideas has really thought through the implications and so i don't think that everyone is knowingly saying that women can't be saved but it is the logical outcome of where these discussions are leading and why it's important that we consider what we're thinking about or what we're teaching about men and women yeah i i agree and i think that that it is um, a topic that there's just been so much confusion on. And and just to kind of play this out for those who are just now understanding this, there is a difference between animals and humans. And there's not a distinct difference between male and female the way that there is between animals and humans. Mm-hmm. You know, we are made in God's image. Animals are not. Right. Animals um, don't have a sin nature from Adam and and so on. So Or a soul. Mm-hmm. Or a soul, yes, exactly. So this is something, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard this, Rachel. <laughs> and that is in regards to the word patriarchy. And so people can be d- talking about different things when they talk about patriarchy. Absolutely. I think in our, in our circles, we are often referring to the, the Christian or biblical patriarchy movement. Mm-hmm. Um, patriarchy can just mean father rule. Um, but one of the things that comes up all the time is, um, can we redeem this word? Because patriarchy itself is biblical. And they're not speaking of the Christian patriarchy movement. So I really want us to address this. 
So when it comes to the word patriarchy, while it's true that you people use it to mean different things, because the word has such a strong association with a particular movement that is not biblical, it becomes really hard to use the word without a lot of qualifications. And like, for example, when we use the word gay today, it means something entirely different today than it did to my grandparents uh, in their their youth. And so today, just like we wouldn't use the word gay unless we were talking about uh, you know, sexual orientation, there are ways in which a word can become so tied to a particular meaning that no matter what you mean by it, anyone hearing you is only going to understand a different meaning. But getting back to, you know, the idea of do we have a patriarchal faith, right? God, yes, God is our father, absolutely. But he is also more than that. He is father, son, and spirit. He is our husband. He is our redeemer. He is our creator. He is our savior, our teacher, our comforter, right? So, I don't, I want us not to get so tied up to the idea that God as father is the only way we view him. And sometimes I think the emphasis on patriarchy as the theme tends to get that way. And so I think it's important that we remember that our faith is much more than patriarchal. Patriarchy is used in the Bible twice. It's used once, to, the word is used to refer to David, and another time to refer to Abraham. The use is very much like our use of forefathers, like we would say um, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, these are the forefathers of our nation, right? And many of the, uh, the Israel forefathers did live patriarchal lives and lived in patriarchal societies. Many were also polygamists, and this would be one of those places where I would say the examples of their lives are of a descriptive nature. This is It describes the, the nature of their society, uh, of their lives, but it's not a prescriptive one. It's not saying that this is the way our lives should be. But even with that background, the Israelites were different from the surrounding cultures and, and different from the modern patriarchy movement when you consider – Deborah as the as a judge, when you consider Ruth and um, she initiates marriage to Boaz, um, you have Esther as a queen. You have the Proverbs thirty one woman who is active in business and making decisions and running a household in a way that would have been is different from a lot of the advice that's given in the modern patriarchy movement. You have Lydia who runs her own business and who's in, out of whose home the church met. So even biblically, the idea of how the people in the Bible lived does not fit with the, the understanding of patriarchal society that you get from history and um, what we get from the modern patriarchy movement. In ex- for example, in the New Testament, Paul's teaching um, about the way we should live often ran counter to the Roman idea of father rule. Um, Paul taught, and scripture teaches, that women are equal in creation and in Christ. He says that women should be taught theology. And his view of leadership is that we should uh, serve, we should lead through service, right, and humility. And so, with these ideas in, in the background of Scripture, then my questions for people in, in response to someone asking, you know, can't we just redeem this word? My questions back would be, 
you know, when you say that patriarchy just means father rule, well, what do you mean by that? Who are the fathers? Do we mean all men, literal fathers, men in leadership roles? What do you mean by rule? Does it mean that husbands are called to sacrificial servant leadership, where they imitate Christ's love for us by putting the needs of their family before their own with humility? Do do you mean that only qualified men who've been called should be ordained leaders in the church, but who serve the church through humility and service, like Jesus washing his disciples' feet? Because that isn't the father rule in the original sense that comes to us through the Roman patriarchy system and the older patriarchal cultures. It is also not the kind of father rule that modern patriarchy proponents are teaching, which is a a top-down hierarchy of authority and submission where men are in authority in all aspects of life. It's a rule about power and control. So, given this, What's the point of rehabbing the term? What is to be gained from it when the connection to such unbiblical teachings is so strong within our society? You know, it's one thing for us to maintain terms like Christianity, even though it is abused by some, because it's a thoroughly biblical term and it has an established meaning in scriptures that we can point to. This is the positive example of what it should be. And there is no positive meaning like that of patriarchy in scripture. There's not this is what it means for, and fathers are to rule. That's not what scripture shows. So, in answer, no, I don't think it's useful to, to use the term, and I don't think that it it gains us anything. And I think it is more helpful to define our faith and our beliefs about men and women in different ways. And I think we have a lot of ways in which we're able to do that. Um, I'm not sure it's necessary. Especially yes. in view of everything you just said. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so. I, that's the point. What does it gain? Like, what what benefit is there to us to use the term, given all of what's associated with it and the qualifications? Right. Yep. Yeah. I had someone on my friends list, and I can't remember. I posted something, and, and he was saying, well, I I don't believe in the all of that stuff in patriarchy, but I believe in patriarchy, so it you know, so I'm patriarchal. And I think, I think to your example of the word gay, you know, because I've, I remember having that discussion with my own grandparents that they would say I'm feeling gay. Mm -hmm. And they're feeling happy. And, you know, and no, if you said that today, every person would assume you meant something very different. I'm reading um, Alice in Wonderland to one of my, my kids right now for school. And, you know, she talks about it being things being queer, right? And I know what she meant by it. That's not what, what's meant by right. it today. And there are other words like that where the words just have become quite different. And so we just have to recognize that. And then, you know, there's some words like Christianity or, you know, the Trinity or faith. Or they're words that we would argue for and try to keep because they're important. And I don't think this is one that has the importance in it that it makes it worth the fight. That's a really great point. (laughs) So with that, we will wrap up this series. Um, You know, I'm sure we'll some of these uh, topics will come up at different times in the future, but glad that we've been able to dig in to this. Um, We've got, I think, uh, Rachel and I did kind of a a planning session last week. And I I think it, it takes us to the end of the year. So, uh, so you'll have to stay tuned. I'm not going to say <laughs> what or say. I haven't decided Spoilers. exactly what 
yeah, what it's called. But I, oh, I guess I did say we're going to be doing an episode on the Trinity. And uh, we've got some other episodes that we're working on planning. We kind of have a special episode next week. Um, so uh, look out for that one. So thanks so much for joining us. I hope this was helpful. I hope it answered some of the questions that came in. And we'll see you next week.